17 and 21 to 35. So it's long. <laughs> if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And now from verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him and said, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my, my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been talking about how uh, following Jesus makes us weird, and one of the things that increasingly makes Christians look weird in our culture is our commitment to forgiveness. Uh, Tim Keller recently passed away. His, his last book was all about uh, forgiveness, uh, and in it he observes that uh, you know, increasingly in our culture, uh, we're finding the whole notion of forgiveness to be uh, offensive. 
And early on in the book, he, he quotes the journalist Elizabeth Brunig, who is a devout uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, when she tweeted back in 2020, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. In other words, we want justice, uh, but we don't want to show mercy. We want people to pay for their sins. And uh, so she, she tweets this statement, and she's immediately inundated with emails and tweets from people who are just outraged by this, by this sentiment, by this comment. And she ended up taking her tweet down. And later, uh, she gives an interview, and in her interview, she says, I see in American culture how offended people seem by the very idea of forgiveness itself. They seem to find it immoral, and I think that's very disturbing. Do you see this too? I'm starting to see it more and more. It's kind of a stunning development. It wasn't that long ago that Americans were, were fine with a God who forgives. They didn't want to deal with a God who, who judges, right? Who doles out punishment and consequences. But today, the prevailing view in our culture seems to be that if you care about justice, and we should care about justice, you cannot forgive. You cannot let people off the hook. If you care about justice, the only option is to crack down on those who say or do the wrong thing. You have to take away their platform. You have to remove them from circulation. You have to blot out their memory and confine them to the realm of the deplorables and the subhuman. That's our only option. I don't have time to chronicle the growing list of people who have lost awards, lost jobs, lost careers, not because of crimes or horrible, atrocious things that they've done, but because of comments that they made sometimes years or decades ago that they've since apologized for. And yet in the court of public opinion, there is no path to restitution. They're, they are irredeemable. Cancer culture has become the ultimate form of punitive legalism. Now, add to this, Keller also laments the, the, the steep decline in our conflict resolution skills. And it seems that we're just no longer able or willing to get face-to-face -face with people and to work through differences, work through conflict. And then he laments our tribal thinking and our division and our quickness to demonize and exclude other people. And all this adds up to what he calls a crisis of forgiveness in our culture. The message that we hear over and over again today is you can forgive or you can pursue justice, but not both because they're opposed to each other. What do you make of this? Either or. How should we respond when somebody harms us, offends us, mistreats us? Is it possible to pursue justice and forgiveness at the same time? Well, in Matthew 18, Jesus presents two teachings side by side. One is on how we should confront sin in our day-to-day -day relationships. And the other is on whether or not we should place limits on forgiveness. According to Jesus... Justice 
and forgiveness are not only compatible, they're both essential if we're going to flourish as human beings in community, in relationship. So let's dive into this text. In, in verses 15 to 17, Jesus addresses what we should do when someone sins against us. But let's begin by defining terms. What is sin? Sin is anything, any thought, any word, any deed that falls short of God's will and glory. And of course, God's will is for people to exist in harmony with each other, with creation, and with him. So sin is anything that disrupts that harmony. Sin is anything that cuts us off from God or from each other. So according to Jesus, sin has to be kept in check so that relationships can flourish. For example, if I lie to you, my lie breaks the trust that you have in me, which harms our relationship. But not only that, my lie pollutes the environment in which we all live so that other people begin to wonder, boy, I wonder who's lying to me. I wonder who I can really trust. Sin breaks relationships. It destroys peace. It drives a wedge between people. So Jesus says, when we notice that, let's nip it in the bud. If your brother or sister sins, go. Point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. And that last part is really important. The goal of pointing out someone's fault is not to rub their face in it, but to win them over. What does that mean? To win someone over is to persuade them that what they did is wrong, that it was dishonoring to God and to you, that it has to stop and it needs to be made amends. The goal is to help that person to be reconciled in their relationships, to, to take responsibility for what they've done and to make it right. So hypothetically, if Beth mops the floor and I walk in from the garden and track dirt all over the house, hypothetically, <laughs> she has every right to feel offended. And it's on me as the one who offended to make things right, which means, first of all, I need to apologize for disregarding and undoing her hard work. And secondly, I need to pull the mop out of the closet and clean up. As penance? No. But to make things right and to honor my wife and to heal the relationship. So step one, according to Jesus, is go to the person and point out their fault. Try to win them over. Give them a way to make it right. That's the goal. If that doesn't work, Jesus says, bring a friend or two along. To gang up on the person? No. To cut through the he said, she said nonsense by having multiple witnesses. And then if that doesn't work, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Get your spiritual leaders, get your community involved. Why? So that the offender feels the weight of what they've done. So that they are held accountable to take responsibility for their actions. And so that the victim knows that the community stands with them. That they're not alone. Then Jesus says, if that doesn't work, then treat them like you would a tax collector or a pagan. And how did Jesus treat tax collectors and pagans? He loved them. He welcomed them. He ate with them. He shared the gospel with them. 
And he was also upfront about their need to repent. When someone sins against you, don't shame them. Don't try to remove them from your, from, from your life. But also, don't pretend like everything's fine. Instead, take steps to help them see their need to make things right, to repair the relationship. So from these first three verses from our passage today, we see that Jesus takes sin seriously. And he takes sin seriously because, because he values relationships. Jesus' goal is to form a new humanity that lives at peace with and honors one another. Jesus takes sin seriously. Love does not sweep sin under the rug. Love brings sin out into the open where it can be dealt with redemptively so that relationships can heal. Jesus is incredibly wise. He's so wise. He knows that gross evil is often the result of small offenses that are left unchecked. And so he gives us a practice for nipping evil in the bud before it snowballs into something huge, into something out of control. So Christians confront sin. That's a little weird. Maybe less weird in our cultural climate but certainly weird in that we do it hopefully. We really want that person to flourish. We really want that person to have a way back into the relationship, back into the community. So we confront not to destroy someone's reputation or end their career, but to win them over, to help them put an end to their harmful behavior, to help them to heal the relationship that they've broken. Two questions people often ask about this passage. How do I know uh, when to confront and how should I confront? Well, let's take the first one. How do I know when to confront? People sin all the time. I fail to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbors. I love myself probably hundreds of times a day by what I do and by what I leave, by what I, I leave left undone. Uh, we can't confront one another every single time we sin. We would exhaust and demoralize each other if we did that. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins, meaning we should not be uh, easily offended. And there are definitely some things we can let go. But Jesus' point is that we should confront sin when it is serious enough to cool off or rupture a relationship. If you realize that you're starting to avoid someone or that you're starting to feel resentful towards someone, or you no longer trust someone, or uh, you, you kind of actively want bad things to happen to someone, that's a pretty good sign that the relationship is not right and something needs to be dealt with. All right, how should I confront someone who hurts me? Paul writes in Galatians 6, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So the goal is not to clobber them, the goal is to help them to become more like Jesus. So when we confront our brother or sister, it should be very clear to that person that we love them, that we're for them, uh, that we're not looking down on them, that we're coming to them as one sinner saved by grace to another. 
Not long ago, a brother came to me and said, Bill, I totally understand why you reacted the way you did in that situation recently, but I think you could have handled it differently. And here's what I think you could have done to communicate love more effectively to this person in this situation. That's what gentleness looks like. So quick recap, Jesus takes sin seriously. We should confront sin when it cools off or fractures a relationship. And we should confront with gentleness and humility and with a goal of helping that person to restore the relationship. All right, what about forgiveness? Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Like seven? And Jesus says, try 77, or, or perhaps the text is saying 70 times seven, which is a Jewish way of saying, Peter, you got to forgive without limits. And then he tells a parable about a king who's settling accounts with his servants. One of his servants owes him an astronomical sum, somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe $600 billion dollars in today's money, more than the gross domestic product of 80% of the nations on earth. How could a servant ever rack up a debt that big? Well, I think we're supposed to assume that this isn't a, uh, you know, a butler. This is a high-ranking government minister who has significant authority. It's still a crazy sum, but after the banking crisis of 2008, it's not unfathomable to imagine how this much money could be mismanaged. Right? So the king writes down the sum, pushes it across the table, says, here's what you owe me. And the servant picks it up, and he knows in that instant that both he and his family are doomed. They are doomed to spend the rest of their lives in debtor's prison, and if they work the rest of their lives, they will never, ever come close to paying off even a fraction of what they owe. So what does he do? He falls on his face and he begs the king for mercy. And the king has pity on him, cancels the debt, and lets him go. Each of these words is important. First, he has pity on him. Literally in the Greek, his heart goes out to him. He identifies with his servant. He feels his desperation. This is the opposite of what we tend to do when someone owes us a debt. Typically, we want to distance ourselves from that person. We want to objectify them. We want to demonize them, turn them into a caricature, reduce them to the worst thing they've ever done. By the way, we never do this to ourselves, right? If I lie, it's because I had a good reason to lie, right? If you lie, well, you're just a liar, right? Isn't that what we do? Miroslav Volf says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans while I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We're quick to justify our own sin and we're awful quick to crack down on other people's sins. By contrast, the king looks at the servant and the king identifies with him. His heart goes out to him. And then he cancels the debt. This right there is the heart of forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up your right to revenge. It's giving up your right to get even. 
When someone offends you or harms you, there's a debt. There is a debt that has to be paid. If I borrow your car and wrap it around a telephone pole and, and I'm not insured, and you take it to a body shop and they say, oh, we can fix it up good as new for $3,000, guess what? Someone has to pay, right? Justice says, I pay $3,000, Mercy says you pay $3,000 or you drive around in an accordion on wheels for the rest of your life, right? But someone has to pay. Justice costs me. Forgiveness costs you. But either way, somebody pays. Likewise, if someone goes around town slandering your character and as a result, your reputation takes a hit in the community, chances are you will feel entitled to return the favor and to launch your own smear campaign against the person who smeared you. Forgiveness is giving up your right to get even, which means you absorb the cost of their slander without inflicting it back on them. Wherever there's sin, there's a debt. Somebody has to pay it. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's why the king in the parable cancels the debt. He absorbs the loss into his own balance sheet. And then he lets him go. He releases him. The servant is no longer bound by his debt. He's no longer held hostage by it. He's no longer defined by it. He has no debt to pay. He owes the king nothing. He's free, legally, psychologically, relationally free. This parable is a powerful window into God's heart. God in Christ identifies with sinners like you and me. He takes pity on us. He cancels our debt. How? By absorbing it into his own body, by paying the cost himself on the cross. God doesn't just make our sin go away. He can't. He has to absorb it. He has to suffer as a result of our sin. But as a result of his suffering, we are free. Forgiveness is an act of the will in which we give up our right to revenge and our right to hold a grudge and we hold open the possibility at least of reconciliation. But forgiveness is always costly for someone. Okay, the parable's not over. The same servant whose enormous debt was just forgiven immediately runs into a fellow servant who owes him a pretty good chunk of change, a hundred days wages, good amount of money, not a small amount, but for perspective, somewhere in the neighborhood of one six hundred thousandth as big as the debt as he's just had forgiven by the king. So a drop in the bucket, really. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, he, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What do we do with this parable? I think it's meant to, convent good, to, to communicate good news, a paradigm shift, and a warning. Let's start with the good news. There, there is no debt that Jesus cannot pay. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God's ability to forgive is greater than your ability to sin. That's the good news. Why should we forgive without limits? Because there is no limit to the forgiveness that our Father in heaven extends to us. All right, what's this paradigm shift? Here, here, here's what I think the paradigm shift is forgiveness is not natural. Justice is natural, tit for tat, an eye for an eye, right? Getting even. Forgiveness is not natural. We learn to forgive by being forgiven. If you're struggling to forgive someone, the solution is not to try harder. The solution is to get in touch with how much God has forgiven you. That's why Jesus tells the parable the way he does. He wants us to identify with that first servant. He wants us to recognize that we have a debt we can never pay, that we are in desperate need of forgiveness ourselves. He wants us to realize the extent to which God pities us, the enormity of the debt he's paid on our behalf so that we can be free, so that we can be reconciled to him and to our neighbor. But forgiveness is not natural. We learn to forgive only by being forgiven. So what's the warning? Well, at the end of the parable, the first servant is punished. Why? Because while he depends on forgiveness, he refuses to extend it to his fellow servant. He's short-circuiting God's mercy. The king says, let's settle our debts. You have a debt. Justice says, pay the debt. And the servant says, I don't want justice. I want mercy. And then just minutes later, he bumps into a colleague who owes him. He says, let's settle our debts. You owe a debt. Pay the debt. Justice says you pay the debt. And the other servant says, I don't want justice. I want mercy. And the first servant says, tough, pay up. Do you see how hypocritical this is? How inconsistent it is. He wants mercy for himself, but justice for his neighbor. He doesn't love the king. He doesn't resemble the king. He is using the king to betray the king and everything the king stands for. Friends, this is what we do when we ask God for forgiveness and withhold it from others. Why should I forgive? I should forgive because God in Christ has forgiven me. I should forgive because I depend on forgiveness. I should forgive because I am part of the community of sinners. 
and my neighbor who's offended me is part of the community of humans whom God created and loves. I should forgive because justice without mercy is a death sentence for me and for everyone else. I should forgive because there is no hope, there is no future, there is no peace without forgiveness in a fallen world. How should I forgive? I have to remember that forgiveness is granted, not felt. Forgiveness is not a feeling. If you wait to feel like forgiving someone, you'll never get there. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a commitment, it's a decision to give up your right to revenge. To let the evil stop with you. It's a commitment to not hold a grudge, to not keep bringing up the offense to the other person. It's a decision to not place that offender in your debt. When you forgive, and this is hard, I know this is hard, you should search your heart for any role you might, you might have played in the breakdown of the relationship. Even if it's just 5%, you should confess that and ask for forgiveness. Sometimes it's 100-0. But if it's 95-5, confess that 5%. And you should pray for that person that they will feel convicted, that they will admit their sin, and they'll, they'll make things right. And you should keep the door open for reconciliation. Now, a question that gets asked all the time is, what if the other person never asks for forgiveness? What if they never admit that they did anything wrong? Do I still have to forgive them? Yes. Now, I think one of the reasons we struggle to forgive is that somewhere along the way, we were taught incorrectly that forgiveness means moving forward with the relationship as though nothing has happened. Forgive and forget, right? That's wrong. That's wrong. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust are three different things. And though they often get bundled together, they shouldn't. They're three different things. Let me explain. Forgiveness has to do with the past. Forgiveness only requires one person. I can choose to forgive you whether or not you ask for forgiveness or make amends. When I forgive you, it means I am choosing in my heart to give up my right to revenge. I'm giving up my right to cultivate bitterness in my heart towards you and resentment. That's all. That's all forgiveness is. It doesn't mean anything beyond that. It only has to do with you and how you square with that person and their behavior in the past. That's all. Forgiveness does not mean we have to have a relationship. It does not mean that I have to trust you. It does not mean anything more than I give up my right to revenge and resentment. Reconciliation has to do with the present, and it requires two people. It requires both parties to agree about what has taken place, who is responsible, what was damaged and how, and how things can be made right in the present. This is what Jesus is getting at when he talks about winning someone over, right? But even then, trust is not automatic. Trust has to do with the future. 
It requires a new track record of trustworthy behavior. You don't earn forgiveness. Nobody can earn forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift. But after a serious offense, you do have to earn back trust. And sometimes you'll earn it back incompletely, and sometimes you won't earn it back at all. A person can slowly regain trust, but only by behaving in a new way that honors the other person. But it can take a long time. It is crucial that we remember that forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust are three different things. They can build off of each other, but they are not bundled together. They are distinct. Does that make sense? This is what makes it possible to forgive someone and not be a doormat. This is what makes it possible to forgive someone and still seek justice. To forgive someone and not make it easy for them to hurt you again. I can forgive someone about what they've done in the past and still have boundaries in the present. It is never loving to make it easy for someone to hurt you. Sometimes I'm capable of setting a boundary by myself, but sometimes um, we need a ministry leader or an elder team or a judge or law enforcement to help us to enforce certain boundaries with people. Let me give you a powerful example, just an everyday interpersonal example of, of forgiveness and boundaries. And Tim Keller tells a story. It's a young woman who had an abusive father, and she really felt convicted to try to uh, reestablish a relationship with him. And so she called him. She said, I'm going to call you every Tuesday night. If you're rude to me, if you're disrespectful to me, if you slide into your abusive patterns, I'm just going to hang up. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to demean you. I'm just going to end the conversation. But don't worry, Dad. I'll call you next Tuesday. So she's leaving the door open. Every week you get a fresh start. But I'm not going to take your crap for one second. Okay. Great example. What about justice? Is it possible to forgive and seek justice without compromising either? Absolutely. Absolutely. Keller says, if you seek justice without forgiving someone, chances are you're actually seeking vengeance. Chances are you're just trying to settle the score. You're just trying to get even. But if you seek justice after forgiving someone, then you can actually seek that person's good. Now, any boundaries you have to set, any consequences, any punishment that has to be meted out isn't aimed at destroying that person. It's aimed at Restoring that person, giving them a way back to God and to community. A beautiful, beautiful example of this is the way that Martin Luther King Jr. led the civil rights movement. He, he gathered his, his team and he made them subscribe to a covenant. And part of that covenant was you have to pray for your enemies every single day. You have to check your heart to make sure that you are loving your enemies and that what you ultimately want is not to turn the tables and gain power over them, but to, but to look at each other and see each other as brothers and sisters who are contending as one for the good of our country, for the good of society. Justice and forgiveness can work in tandem beautifully. Now, um, before we wrap up, I just, I, there's something I need to speak to because of uh, trends in 
American Christendom that just need to be named um, and spoken clearly about. There have been many high-profile examples of people in ministry, people in positions of power, saying to victims, okay, you have to forgive. Jesus demands it because if you pursue justice, you will destroy this ministry, and this ministry is saving people, so you basically be, be destroying people's salvation if, if you prosecuted. This is weaponizing forgiveness, and it is evil. It is particularly pernicious because it is a failure to confront evil, which Jesus tells us to do. It's a failure to protect victims, which Jesus tells us to do. And it's a failure to do justice. Yes, a person who's been mistreated by a ministry leader should forgive that ministry leader. And at the same time, that ministry leader should be removed from leadership and investigated and, if necessary, punished because that's what justice demands. And those steps are completely compatible with forgiveness because the aim of both forgiveness and justice is the restoration of the sinner before God. All right. We asked the tough question at the beginning, is it possible to forgive and to seek justice at the same time? Is it possible to confront sin and forgive the sinner at the same time? The answer is yes, even though that makes us really, really weird in our culture today. It's crucial. Forgiveness is crucial because we stake our lives on it. To forgive someone is to believe in their redemption. It's to believe that relationships can heal. It's to believe that people can change. It's to believe that there can be a Copernican revolution in someone's life if God's glory displaces their ego from the center. To forgive is to place ultimate justice in the hands of God and not take that upon ourselves. It's not our job to destroy people or to cut people off. To forgive is to enter into the story of Jesus, a much better story. Who though he did no wrong and committed no sin, yet he became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid a debt we could not pay. He set us free to, among other things, forgive our debtors as God has forgiven us. To forgive is to be consistent and to be honest and truthful about our own need of forgiveness and not withhold from others what we ourselves have received from God. To forgive is to hope that each person is more than the worst thing they've ever done and that there is life after sin. Stay weird, church. Let's pray.